Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 65 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch Podcast. And finally, at long last, Waking Up to Narcissism, the premium Q&A episode is available on Apple Podcasts. It is $4.99 a month. That's $4.99. And you will get access to a weekly private episode where I go into great detail answering the questions that have been sent in. And I have a lot of questions to go through. And if you have questions around narcissism, emotional immaturity, how it impacts you, your family, anything at all, please send that to contact at TonyOverbay.com or you can send it through any of my social media accounts. And that's just a nice way to say as well, if you can go to the show notes and hit the link tree link in the show notes, and that has all the links to the various podcasts and uh, a new Murder on the Couch promo trailer that is, I think, hilarious. Um, Murder or True Crime Meets Therapy, that is on there as well. And that is in the show notes. And you can also sign up for my newsletter. And there is where you will uh, start to hear about a lot of very exciting podcasts and projects and courses. But let's today, I'm going to try to just get right to the interview because I actually was going to sit on this interview for a few weeks, but it just, it just resonated with me. And my daughter, Alex, who does the, the editing of the podcast, she had also shared that that was a really good interview. And so I just felt a little bit impressed to run with it. So my my guest today is Dana Killian, and Dana is an author. She has written a, a number of books, and they're available on Audible. We talk about that at the end of the podcast, and I think she gives some really good insight on her fiction. But this is a memoir, and it's called Where the Shadows Dance. And, and stay with me here, because we're on the Waking Up to Narcissism podcast. We're talking about narcissism or emotional immaturity. And her book, though, and if I read off of the back cover, it says, he got sober, I got broken. Um, she said, it would be easy to say where the shadows dance is a memoir about a marriage, but a marriage is simply the setting. Dana Killian dives deep into what we do for love, what we do because of love, how love can break us, how love can save us, and how the most important love is the love we feel for ourselves, because without it, no other kind can be as rich. Um, she says it's a raw, vulnerable explore, exploration of the damage that secrets and lies inflict, where the shadows dance is a story for every woman who has set herself aside because of someone else's needs seem greater. So that line right there, uh, every woman who has set herself aside because someone else's needs seem greater. And we can talk about the, the woman or the man. And I really feel like this, this story, even though she's talking about her, or her husband and alcoholism, that it just so parallels the journey of so many people that are in these unhealthy uh, relationships with emotionally immature or narcissistic people, whether it is men or women. But her story just resonates. And as an author, I just, when she sent the, I got an advanced copy of the book and it is a phenomenal book. It's available for pre-order. So you can go to Amazon and pre-order it. Her website is full of some really amazing and wonderful information. But I'll have a link to the pre-order of the book in the in the notes. And you can also um, reach out to me if you have additional questions. I really enjoyed having her on. And uh, I, I was really intentional and let her know off the air. And then we talked about it on the air that I, I wanted to, to get to the interview. I wanted to be a good interviewer. I didn't want to interrupt too much. But I also wanted to really reframe a lot of the things that she was talking about with her battle with her, her husband's alcoholism. 
and her needing self-care, needing to stand up for herself. And I wanted to um, parallel that with the journey again of so many people that are in unhealthy relationships with narcissistic or emotionally immature people. And I think that you'll just see the parallels fit perfectly. And she's a wonderful guest. And uh, so let's let's get to this interview with the author of Where the Shadows Dance, Dana Killian. Dana Killian, welcome to, and as I was sharing with you before, probably the virtual couch, waking up to narcissism. I have a true crime meets therapy podcast. And I feel like your story is so good. I think that welcome, welcome to the virtual couch network. Let's put it that way. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you. And my audience will know that I really like to just kind of go back and forth, but I actually wrote questions because I, I just feel like your story is so fascinating. And there's something that I actually heard in a, in another interview that you gave where you talked about you were journaling in addition to therapy. So there's a, a part of me that wants to just ease into your story by as a therapist, I applaud you for journaling. And I'm curious, what was that process like and how did it differ from you write fiction novels as well? I do. Yeah. Journaling was something I wasn't immediately drawn to. Um, mm. I had a therapist suggest it, and my first reaction was horror. Yeah. And was, tell me why. Why? Yeah, what, and, what came up for you? I was still at that place, at that point of the fear of being discovered. My okay. internal thoughts. I was still in the marriage at this point. Mm. I was still going through a great deal of pain, and I wasn't ready to share and I felt that that journal would be discovered. Oh, I see. And so it was a scary thing for me. But later on, I was in a different place. Mm -hmm. I was in a place of such emptiness that therapy was fine, but it really wasn't getting loosening up all the stuff that kind of comes up in between the things yeah. that you can't cover in an hour, the things that were just really for me, lots and lots of questioning. So I found a journal and I just started downloading and I, and I don't have any other way to, to frame it other than downloading questions, pain, how I'm feeling yeah, without any purpose other than to get it out of my head and out of my heart. No, I love that. To get it out of your head, I often find that people are so afraid of, and you can have all kinds of yeah, buts, the yeah, but it will get discovered, or yeah, but it will just go darker, or yeah, but it will make me feel worse. And it sounds like you had those thoughts as well. Once I actually started journaling, yeah, I was really excited to do it. Okay. It, it, felt, it felt like I'd found a release. Wow. And I was less afraid of discovery at that point. Okay. Um, there'd been a lot of other conversations and I knew that at that point I needed to worry about myself and yeah. I needed to worry about finding a way to deal with the pain and the emptiness that was inside me. And the journaling was something I was thrilled to do. And did that happen pretty quickly after you started the process or did that yes. take a little? Okay. I love yes, that. For me, so it did. I'm going to cut this clip and then send it to every client that I have, everyone I will have in the future. So I appreciate you sharing that. You talked about that you needed to think more about or do that for yourself. And maybe that might be a nice transition into, I would love to just hear your story because part of the, where I felt like this would fit in the narcissism world or emotional immature world, I, I often identify this. There's an author, Ross Rosenberg, that calls it the human magnet syndrome, where there's a, a pathologically kind person who then is with a 
emotionally immature, narcissistic person. And then it forms this human magnet where the, you've got the kind person continually caretaking, buffering, you know, looking for it. And I'm curious, Dana, and maybe let's just let you tell your story, but I just wanted you to know that's what a lot of my listeners are probably coming at that from their own experiences, being that pathologically kind or caretaker that is felt in this human magnet. So I'm curious if that was a similar feeling that you had. And so the, the quick version of my story is yeah. that I was in a 25-year marriage to a very high-functioning alcoholic. Mm. Okay. And he eventually went into inpatient treatment, mm-hmm. uh, did get sober at that point. He had had therapy, but not rehab. Okay. But at, while he was at rehab, I then learned another part of our story that I hadn't known. He had been living a secret life. Oh, a life of other women, throughout our marriage, an unknown number. Wow. This is kind of where the journaling process comes in. Yeah. Um, as I was trying to deal with the whys of all of that. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he'd gotten sober. He'd gotten sober for me. And mm. now I've got this new hurt, this new problem, this new crushing blow to deal with. And journaling became a bigger part of my life at that point. And through the journaling... Yes, I write fiction. So through the journaling, I began to see that I did have a story. Mm. And that writing that story, at least for me, was a good way to gain perspective on what had happened in my life. Because as you and all your listeners know, when you were in the middle of trauma and pain, you can't see the big picture. No, not at all. You can't step away from it. And there was so much in that stage of questioning myself and questioning him, what has been real in my life? Yeah. And the journaling gave me that opportunity to see that I I had a story there, but I didn't know, and that a story that I needed to write, but writing a book is not the same as publishing a book. Okay. And Talk so about that's that. how, that's yeah. how I incrementally got into this process. So I decided to write and I wrote that awful, dirty first draft, as we call it. And it was garbage. (laughs) And it was full of all this protective language. I tried to still, I tried to tell the story from the after. I tried Mm. to still, I used distancing language. I used every trick in the book (laughs) to not face the reality of, and not to not say it all. Dan, at that point, did you feel, was it a, I didn't know what I didn't know, or I I wasn't willing to confront, or were you aware that I am doing this because I don't want to get that close? I was not aware that I was doing it until after that draft was done and I read it and went, oh no, (laughs) this is not working. (laughs) I can't do this. If I am not as real and raw and honest as I can be, I mean, I can write it, but it's just therapy for me. I'm going to do something else with this. And I had to make that decision. The only way that it made any sense or had any value to me in the long run and to other people in the near term was that I had to find a way to be as vulnerable and raw and human and full of flaws and embarrassment as I could. And I had to tell it from the truth. I'm probably just making assumptions, but as a fiction writer, I often assume that someone who writes fiction, there's a lot of their story or truth in those characters, or is that the case with your regular books? And then was there a point where you thought about turning this story into a fictional story? Those are really good questions. Yes. Huh. In my fiction, there are small parts of me. And interestingly enough, 
there are small parts of that I wish I had. I could make my character a little more confident, a little bolder, a okay. little more persistent than I was. Because some of this, a lot of the uh, the most difficult parts of the drinking stage were happening as I was writing these books. So oh. my real life inched in, but I couldn't mm. admit to that. It's not a 100% representation, but yeah. small parts of who I was and who I wanted to be came in. Did I ever think about fictionalizing my personal story? Yeah. Not for a second. Okay. I love that. I like what you said a minute ago, where even though this story is going to be raw and vulnerable and full of flaws, and you will most likely be open to others saying, well, why didn't you? And I don't know if you've already had that reaction. I've had one of the things that, again, you know very well, is that there's so much silence around addiction. Yes. Silence that we feel guilt and we feel remorse and shame and... We're just trying to be silent to protect ourselves and to protect others. And so as I've begun to talk about this book, you know, and I was no different. I was very silent about what was going on. But as I was beginning to share parts of my story with people who knew me, the the thing I heard is, I wish I had known. I could have helped you. I could Mm -hmm. have done something for you. But by that time that comes along, there's so much silence. It's the, the story is too big. You don't yeah. know how to break it down. It's almost better, better, easier for me to say, here, just read my book. <laughs> yeah. oh, I bet. Okay. <laughs> so what I'm hearing Dana say is everyone that has gone there, but I mean, it really would. The journaling process alone, if you looked at it, if someday it would become a book, whatever it would take, I think, to get that written out, I think is such a good message. That is. It's immensely freeing. Yeah. And that was, that was a wonderful surprise to me. And. As I've spoken to people who have been in difficult situations and who say, gosh, I, I've thought about writing a book. I, I just say, write it. You don't have mm-hmm. to publish it. Take yeah. it in little steps. Get that stuff out of you. Mm-hmm. Gain well, and, perspective. Uh, how many years into your marriage was that moment where you found out this about the second life? We were 20 years in. 20 years in. Okay. Yeah. And then you, you stayed at uh, another five. Is that how long? Yeah. Um, okay. there were, we made two attempts at divorce. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is devastating information in marriage. And yeah. I was a mess. I was mm. in shock. I yeah. was curled up in a ball on the floor for a year at least. Wow. And there was an eventual attempt at divorce, but there was still so much love between us, which sounds bizarre, even as I'm saying it about myself, but there was, and yeah. we hadn't played out all of that love. We hadn't played out all of the work that he had done in getting sober to try well, to damn keep me in his life. Well, and I would love to talk about that. And I feel like I, I do, I, I hear you with that. And I think a lot of the people on the, I mentioned off air that I have this private women's Facebook group for women in relationships with emotionally immature or narcissistic. And I say, fill in the blank. It can be a spouse. It can be an adult child. It can be a parent. And there's that just dance, the trauma bond, the, but there are good times. And so we want to look at those. So when you say we tried to divorce in that world of emotional maturity or narcissism, when somebody gets to the point there where they say, I'm done, you know, I feel like, man, none of us like to sit with that discomfort. And so we want that relief. And sometimes all it takes, I notice as a partner to say, Hey, I, I get it. And, I, and I'm going to change. And now that makes that person feel better. And then the person who is fed up feels relief. And I'm curious, was that playing out as well? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that when you've had a partner for so many years, And the most important thing, the the thing that makes you safest is to be in his arms, 
how do you walk away? Or it's difficult to walk away. You love this person for a reason. And part of being in an addictive relationship is that you do understand. You're forced to understand the compartmentalization that addicts are masters at. Yeah. And so they put their drinking in a box over on the side and the whole of who they are is not the booze. Absolutely. It's not the bad behavior. Yeah. So of course you're going to look for that, but here's this good. And would that be the, when I talk about the pathologically kind, I feel like it's in, in one's nature to want to just not focus on the negative, but in you and be the cheerleader and you can do this. And I, I see you and would you, were you that role at all in the marriage? I had part of that role. Certainly. I think, I think we all do. Yeah. Again, this is, this is someone we love Yep. and we know the reasons we love them. Mm -hmm. And we also have this sense of responsibility that if I leave, he's going to die, you know, at, at its bottom line, we have, we take on some responsibility, but what we don't see is that if we stay, we are dying. Oh. We're dying emotionally. Amen. And it is this dance until one of you breaks. Yeah. And oh, it's Dan, a question that's, of who's going to break first. It is. And I talk often about the, there's a book about trauma. I don't know if you're familiar. It's called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And, and that's where I feel like when the person who is losing their sense of self continues to go back in and say, we can do this, eventually their body says, we can't. So well, let's give you some anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, hypertension. Let's throw some you know, chronic pain in there and whatever that takes. But the person says, man, I, but I love this person or we can make this work. So I, did you feel ever physical symptoms like that? Absolutely. I had okay. moments where I was passing out. Oh, man. I yeah. was losing my hair. I had thyroid mm. problems. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there, you cannot be in a long-term chronic stress situation yeah. and not have physical effects. No. And I really do believe, you know, I like to say the brain is a don't get killed device. So it's trying to say, this is not okay. This is not working. But I like when you mention, I mean, it's I, again, like is the wrong word at times, but as a therapist that wants people to feel heard and seen that when you talked about that compartmentalization and just last night, I run a men's group for addiction and we really have been focusing lately on in that moment when the person says, I will never do it again. Again, it relieves that discomfort. Their partner also is so grateful to hear that. So everybody feels good. But then they will never do it again until they do it again, because once they get out of that discomfort, then that's where the work needs to occur. And I feel like that's the, but the person feels good now. I'm not, I'm not going to do it again. And then if the spouse says, okay, but what are you going to do about it? Then all of a sudden they're caretaking or they're feeling like they're overstepping their bounds. Would you have those moments where you would, I don't want to say demand, but really ask him for recovery or what was that like? Well, for us, there were just, there were kind of two stages. There was what was happening when I thought our only problem was the alcohol. Yeah. And there was never a, I will never drink again. Okay. Conversation. It was, I will go to therapy. I'm going to, I commit to doing this. Let me do this on my own. If I can't make this work, I will do rehab. Mm. And that continued. And he was honoring his promises. And of course there's always, (laughs) Oh, there it goes again. Yeah. And the drinking becomes secret. Okay. And we reached a point where he only went into rehab when I said, you have a choice. You can have me or you can have vodka. Okay. That's when he went to rehab and he did get sober. Okay. So then our second stage was more, 
I will never hurt you again. And that was the sexual behavior. Mm. But there were lots of other, I had more guardrails, I guess, around that behavior. I was far more cautious. I was far more distrustful. I had a private investigator ready. I had a post-nup. I had all of these things in place. And every time I erupted in any kind of fear, jealousy, concern, outrage, whatever it was, he behaved exactly as he should have. He was humble. He was Mm. contrite. He was empathetic. There was a shift in him once he got sober and that, and booze wasn't controlling his brain. Mm. He could then see some of these other behaviors. So I was still in this back and forth. What do I believe? What do I trust? What do I want for that five-year period of why am I doing this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. what kind of woman stays with a man who has been a serial cheater? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was part of it and part of my own um, you know, self-analysis and yeah, professional and, and, analysis too. Well, and, and I so appreciate your vulnerability here because I know it's going to speak to so many people that are going through things like this and they go to the what's wrong with me. And then I often just say, man, we don't know what we don't know. And then we find out, but we don't know what to do about it. And then we eventually do more than we don't. And then finally we become, and I know that sounds maybe a little bit out there, but that process I feel can take as long as it takes yet another cliche. But do you feel like there was a certain point where something just turned or clicked or you had made a decision or was that more of just this gradual shading of lived experience? Well, as I said, we made two attempts at divorce. And yeah. the first attempt, I think the way I sum it up most succinctly is there were just simply too much love. We had not played out enough mm. of who are you after? Okay. Is there something that we can, you know, salvage isn't quite the right, right word, but is there something that can be made anew? Is yeah. there anything there worth? So it was a cautious stage. Yeah, And I went through a great deal of time of having second thoughts, packing a bag, moving out for a few days. It was, it was torture. Yeah. But every single time he did exactly what I would have hoped he had become a different kind of man, a different kind of husband to me in that stage. I'm still in this place of questioning myself. Yeah. And the big impetus for me to really see how empty I had become was when COVID hit. Oh, okay. There was nothing else in our lives to distract. We Mm. simply were forced to be with each other, no diversion, and to look at, I had to look at the relationship and my own life and my own self in a very different way without anything else in the way. And that's when I realized that although I think I want this relationship to find a path forward, mm-hmm. I was never going to get back to that place where I had adored this man. Okay. I know he's doing everything that he can to try to keep me in his life. He's doing everything I could have asked of him as a husband at that point. I see. Okay. For me. Yeah. But I was utterly empty. Yeah. I opened my book with a scene where I'm standing from a 13th floor window looking down on Lake Michigan, wondering what it would feel like to stand on the edge of the water and just slip in. I wouldn't have done it. I wasn't dead. Right. I wasn't suicidal. Yeah. But to even have those thoughts, because you're just so empty. Yeah. 
nothing. You're desperate to feel something. That was what was the shift and the switch in me that said, this isn't the future I want. Yeah. I want something better. I need something better for me. Yes, I still love this man. I don't love him the way I did. And we have played out everything we could play out in trying to save, protect, rebuild, however you want to call it. Absolutely. A relationship that was really largely wonderful. So yeah, I love the booze. Right. And I love that story because that really is, that is at the end of the day, trusting your gut and doing something that is, is scary and difficult because it would have been easier to just say, okay, I guess I'll remain numb, but at least he's trying. I mean, that, that kind of a, yeah, no, I'm grateful to hear that. Cause I feel like a lot of the people I work with are in they're they're in some really unhealthy relationships and feel that same flatness or apathetic state, but then feel like, well, I guess that's just my lot in life. And the people that have the courage, I think, and that's maybe a, a strong word, but to go through with the, what you went through, I think, you know, how are you now? What do you, I guess, what I, advice would you give to somebody in that scenario? Well, that's part of why I wrote this book. Yeah. Okay. Because I felt that one, I need personally, I needed to heal yeah. and speaking about everything I'd experienced would help me heal, but publishing a book would help other people who have been in the situation. Sometimes we need someone else. We need to see it through someone else's eyes in a very personal way to understand that it's okay to take a little step. I have spoken to a lot of women who have had addictive relationships. And the one thing every single one of them says to me is I regret my silence. For as long as I was silent. Yes. We do it to protect our families. We do it for very good reasons. But ultimately, that silence destroys us. Yeah. So my advice to anybody, when you are, whether you're in the relationship still and trying to figure out if you should stay, or you are out of the relationship and still dealing with the guilt and the regret, is start first with, how do I give up my silence? Mm-hmm. Who can I talk to? And it, you know, a therapist is great, but a therapist is not the same as facing your sister mm. and having her look at you with pity and horror and you did what? <laughs> They're not what I found as I've spoken to people, people close to me who did not know. They feel bad that they didn't know. They yeah. feel bad that they couldn't help me. And they are, for whatever judgment I thought might have been there in their eyes, it's not there. That was just me projecting it. That was me protecting myself. We cannot love another human being if we do not love ourselves. We can't have a decent relationship with anyone if we don't love ourselves first. Yeah. And this, for me, is part of going back to that place of, I have to love myself. I have to be healthy myself. I have to be emotionally strong myself And then the rest of the world will follow and coming to the understanding that my husband's bad behavior, his drinking and his sexual behavior, they were not about me. They were a hole inside of him that he was trying to fill and he filled it in terrible ways. He did. And and his hole was, he did not believe he deserved to be loved. He didn't deserve my love. And then he just acted it out. He played it out. He made it true. And, And there's some comfort for me in understanding that. 
Because we we take it personally. We do. And boy, can I ask you a quick question on, I love what you said about, because I think we are so afraid that if we share with people that we will be judged or there will be a lot of negative comments made. And I will say that to the narcissism or emotionally immature group, I've done a couple of episodes on what are called Switzerland friends. And and what that is, is when someone does open up to someone and they say, well, there's two sides in every story, or I'm sure that, and that's where we talk about if that is someone, then that isn't someone that maybe is the safest person to share with. But when you find someone that is going to say, tell me more, or I wish I would have known, or I could have helped. Did you run into any of those Switzerland type friends? I didn't personally, okay, um, yeah. but there are, I, I understand where some of that came from yeah. as I've spoken to other women, particularly when it comes, my husband was a very high functioning alcoholic okay, and like a lot of my high functioning alcoholics, very smart, very successful, very charismatic. Mm. And so this is not the image that the world sees of him. Yeah. And so as we began to tell close friends, they kind of minimized the drinking. They minimized it as, that's not the guy I see. Can't you just stop? It it really must not be as big of a deal as you make it out to be. Yeah. And that's where I like what you're saying, but at some point, you you know, you know what you know. And and I love that message. I have a couple of things from your book that I want to talk about. And so that reminds me of one, if I'm going to go, not in the order, but Where the Shadows Dance, a memoir. I've read a lot of it. And I have to tell you, Dana, a lot of times when I do the interviews, I want to just do a quick skim, but it's a really good read. And, and I think I'm just seeing so many things that parallel this human magnet syndrome, people that are trying to get out of these unhealthy, emotionally immature, narcissistic relationships. But when you just said, when people would say, that's not the person I see, there's a, let me pull this up. I... I there's a, toward the end, you have a, I should have marked the chapter, but it was where you were going to see your dad about your mystery boyfriend. Um, <laughs> and I just, I love that. So I did, I wrote this down where I, you know, he said, I must have a boyfriend. Your elderly father, he was unable to comprehend the divorce even years after the incidents that caused it. And then the quote, you said, your father has concocted the only explanation that seems logical to him. I'm running off with another man. And I would love to hear that, of what that was like. And then your sister reacted and said, dad, you know what he did. And and again, bless your dad's heart. Cause I feel like this is what people you know, we don't, none of us like to sit with discomfort. So I like when you said he concocted the only explanation that I often say, oh, we create a narrative to, to, you know, fit our view. But then your dad said, yeah, but that was a while ago. I just, I still don't understand. So yeah. What was that like? And I mean, that whole dynamic, because it sounds like, you know, you, you were there taking care of your dad. What an admirable thing. And yeah, it, it was at a stage that my father was very elderly, needing mm-hmm. a lot of physical help. He was a man of the, you know, the John Wayne era. I love that description. Talk about your feelings. Yeah. And this idea that I must be running off for another man. And this, this to give some context was after, you know, I, the real divorce and I was leaving. And not only did I leave my marriage, but I moved cross country to Tucson. And he just was dumbfounded couldn't say any of it to me. He could only say it to my sister because again, men of that era don't know how to discuss emotions. And if I can't explain it to him in about a two second, two, maybe two minutes, 
it just yeah. didn't mean anything to him. So he was just grasping for straws. Well, and I, completely unfounded. But well, I sense that in the book, which I that's why I just I really feel like it's the story so well told because I talk about this concept, this nonviolent communication it, where we make an observation and a judgment in an instant to try to make sense of the world. And so I True. think that is such a good explanation of that. And I almost feel like that's one of those tests of where you're at as a individual if it can be all oh, bless his heart, you know, trying to make sense of that. Is that, and it, I felt <laughs> that that exactly, was the case. Okay. Exactly. At that point yeah. in his life, you know, he's an yeah. elderly man. He's, he's set in his ways. I was not going to be able to convince him of anything. Well, and then I loved that. It, I feel like go. that must have been, was that nice to see your sister, you know, how do you know, but, but you don't understand. So I feel like you got to see your sister care and your dad bless his heart. And you know, I think I'm good. And I mean, that's yeah. what I was imagining. Yes, that's, that was exactly it. It was at a point in time that, all of the hard decisions had been made. There was still mm-hmm. a great deal of healing to happen on my heart, in my heart. But yeah, a lot of the family expectation and the dynamic of who's going to judge me and my family. What can I say? What can't I say? I had already shed that. Oh, I was good. I love firm it. in my convictions of what I was doing, and I didn't really need them to understand. That's powerful right there, Dana. I mean, that, and that's, I think, when I work with people and whatever that shift occurs or when that happens that it's, you know, again, I, and I say that's adorable, like that concern they show and, and they look really angry and those are a lot of, of words. And so, but I'm good. Thank you. You know, and, and I just, I sensed that in your book kind of going then out of order. There was another part, chapter 19. And I, there was a couple of things here, rebellion, your 25th anniversary passes. And, and I love how you said, okay, at first I'm okay. And as a therapist, I'm so fascinated by some people. They, oh my gosh, this date is going to, hang forever and other people will get past a date and they think, oh, it wasn't so bad. And, and I love that yours I'm reading. And at first it was like, Hey, that wasn't so bad. And then uh, four eighteen in the morning. <laughs> so, uh, and I, and I do have a quote from you that I really thought I thought was good, but what was that? What was that like? I mean, what do you remember that? I do remember that. I remember that very well. It was, uh, it was at a stage where I was caretaking for my father. I'm in mm. this limbo stage where we are processing the divorce I'm caring for my father. I'm in northern Wisconsin. I don't want to be there. I don't have a home. I don't know what my life and my future are going to be. And I was back in this place of caring for another man who needed help, who was frail and helpless. And here I am repeating myself. And my father also had started drinking at that point in his life in an unhealthy Mm. way. Mm. Um, So it was a stage where... I'm trying to sort through lots of complex emotions on my end, also feeling kind of frozen and stuck on where I I couldn't move forward in my life yet. And so my emotions were really a lot of roller coastering, not stuck in the pain moments largely. Mm. So I'm balancing out excitement for what could be. And then, damn it, I'm dragged back into the past. And like anybody who's in some kind of traumatic, stressful situation, sleep can be elusive. And to wake up oh, yeah. at four o'clock in the morning and go, here I am, here oh. I am. And yeah, if you I mean, remember it, from that moment, I just, okay, I grabbed my computer and I just yes. started downloading all the garbage that was in my head. Which again, I, I'm implying all these powerful therapeutic principles on you, whether you know it or not. And so that's why I love the... The I'm okay, now I'm not, and then I do. Because I, I say constantly when we ruminate and beat ourselves up and what's wrong with me, you know, we're, we're looking for this certainty we won't find. So then I always say, you know, yeah, those are 
noted and now do. And you did. And you did. There's a quote that I really liked. And you said, they say that time heals all wounds. Does it heal or simply blunt the pain, the ache, instead of becoming a constant road that we no longer distinguish from the other roars, our roar, constant roar that we no longer distinguish from the other roars assaulting our bodies and minds? I can't answer that. Not tonight. Not on this day. Again, so well said. And I'm curious now. And I, you know, I have my answer that that you need to say. I'm kidding. <laughs> but you know, now, does did that time? Did it just simply blunt the pain, or did time? What did time do for you? I think what time did was give me distance and perspective. Mm. Time itself, I don't think changes everything. Anything if you yeah. stay stuck in your pain and your trauma, and people do that. I didn't know how I was going to remove that pain, but I was, I knew early on that I was committed to not letting my husband's behavior destroy me. Yeah. And time for me was, it gave me a tool. It, it, it was just part of the tool. I couldn't mm-hmm. do it alone. Speaking, writing, giving myself perspective, not only on myself, but his behavior, his addiction, his compartmentalization, it all had to work together. And yeah. so time kind of helps things marinate. Oh, that's good. I like that. And uh, I want to now, of course, jokingly say that was the correct answer. You know, that you, you did that <laughs> correct. Um, because I, I, I do, I'm asked that question about time and how long. And then I, I unfortunately say as long as it takes and you're right where you need to be. And, but, but I know that that, that can be helped when people are actively doing and then people say do what well kind of anything at first other than ruminating and thinking and and so i just i feel like your book whether you know it or not Dan, i mean it just laid that that process out so well and i think that it does often take longer than people would like for it to take but then when they're they're through it then it had to take as long as it takes and i don't know if that was your experience as well or i think that's one of the reasons that i've or, or a conclusion i've come to as I sat with the attempted divorce number one, finally mm. doing it number two. So we had this we had this five year period of being in the middle. And to be honest, I think there was a lot of healing that was going on inside of me, although inside the marriage, a healing yeah. that led to divorce. Yeah, but no, that makes so that much time sense. Darren. And that processing was I think essential. I had we divorced at our first attempt. I don't know that I would have been as healthy about it. I, I would have, I would have been a mess still emotionally. I would have sat with that anger longer yeah. than I did. That right there. I mean, I, that's where I will maybe go back in and edit me asking a question that, that sounded really smart. I'm kidding. I won't because that's that, that answer. So sums up in my work as a therapist of someone wants to say, well, just tell me what I need to do and, and when, and what do you think would be best? And, and, oh, don't hand me that power because then it will give you the opportunity that let's say, yeah, I, well, I mean, I've seen that this is most 90, whatever percent of the time it won't work and you'll be happier out, but I'm not going to say that because then if the person says, okay, cause then they'll get out. And now if they don't feel good, the first thing they can do is say, well, the therapist said that it wasn't going to work. What was I supposed to do? And I feel like what you just said there about that healing comes in that there's a book that refers to it as the messy middle. And I think that healing has to come, I mean, obviously within, but that might be within the marriage. And that is difficult because you're around the person that you're frustrated by, but you want to then talk to about the frustration with the person, which is ironic. Yeah. So much there. Yeah, there is. And I, I certainly had 
a therapist who said, are you sure you want to stay in this marriage? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and I intellectually knew that was correct. I needed to leave, but emotionally yeah. I wasn't ready to do it. And so yeah. I think this, this whole issue of time and how we beat ourselves up, the part to remember for all of us is that this is not linear. There is oh. not one thing and we will do like the addict does one step forward, two steps backwards. Yes. We'll reverse it. We'll get two steps forward and one step back. And this is normal. And this is okay. As long yeah. as there's some progress and some change, what won't work is not, is to hold on to the pain and Absolutely. to stay in that awful place where you regret and you can't even talk about it. And I'm already running into women who like, I want to give this book to my friend because she's there and she won't even go near it. She can't even yeah. acknowledge that this was part of her life. Those are not people that are in healthy places. Mm. And it's, and, and, and it's so back, sad. It is. And when you were talking before, when we talk about your, that opening scene and you're looking and thinking about being on the edge of the water, or I have people that will say, Hey, I'm not suicidal, but I call it the, but if a meteor hits me, that's, that's not a bad thing. You know, theory where it's that again, the, <laughs> I think the brain is a absolute don't get killed device. So it, it is going to do anything it can to get your attention. And so when people don't open up about things, keep things in their head, then they, I feel like, you know, unfortunately people start to get to this place of feeling everything from suicidal thoughts and ideations and especially not being willing to open up about that because that is a shame filled process as well. So I, I just, I think your message is really going to resonate. And, and I feel like hearing it from people that have been through it, I, I don't know what you know, I think it really speeds up the healing process for those in it. And as a therapist, I can say all the right words and people feel heard and understood. But when somebody has gone through it, like you have, I feel like that just, that, that it does, it speeds up the healing. So I'm, I really, I really appreciate you coming on and your book was really, I mean, I really like it a lot. I'm a huge audiobook guy. So I've already got your uh, fiction books and they're all, oh. can I ask a couple of just nerdy uh, sure. author questions? <laughs> Okay. So, okay. The, and I'll talk about some of this stuff in the intro too, but okay. Your books are, it's the Andrea Kellner series. So lies in high places, the last lie, lies of men. Tell me about the, tell me about your interest in lying, Dana. <laughs> tell me about the, tell, sell, sell those fiction books. Cause I, I love audiobooks <laughs> and I listen constantly. So I'm excited to, to listen to those. And the memoir is going to be an audio as well. I'm working okay, on that I'm now. in. Perfect. Just, you know. So, I was starting to write the fiction as the heaviness, the worst part of the, my husband's drinking was happening. Mm. And I was uh, starting to find out what was going on, yeah. what had been going on in his life. I made the decision to start writing before I knew the truth. And mm. for me, writing mystery, what I enjoy is the psychological part, the puzzle, the okay. why the how, oh, I can't wait. who's doing it. You know, I'm not into the blood and gore part. I want yeah. the psychological behind the scenes, what motivates people. And kind of the short answer to the lies is in those books, my character, Andrea, she could uncover lies that I wasn't uncovering in my real life. Okay. And now, now I have to and listen. Lying at, oh, and yeah. lying is at the core of all of these crimes. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Okay. Can I get you to, uh, I have a new true crime meets therapy podcast coming out Ooh. in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Murder on the couch. I would love to maybe have you come on there and let's break down one of your books. I think that would be a lot of fun. That'd be wonderful. 
Okay. All right. Dana, what a, what a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on. And I think this is going to resonate with the overall mental health audience of the virtual couch and then the waking up to narcissism. I think it's just going to speak volumes to, to the people so that are experiencing that. No. So thank That's you. Um, and uh, <laughs> good. I'll have all this in the show notes, but where can people find you? I am Dana Killian.com. I okay. have book pages for everything. There are links to purchase. It's av- The book is available pre-order right now, and it okay. will be available anywhere you like to buy books. Okay. And I read some of your online journal as well. And I mean, you've got a lot on your website and you're a very good writer. So I Thank highly you. encourage people to go check that out. All right, Dana, I hope we will get to talk again. I'd love that. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank it was really Thank great you. talking to you. 